Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather in person and online every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Now, of course, if you're online, uh, we know that people watch it kind of all different times, and that's great. Uh, but if you are on the video uh, and you're in the chat, just say hello. Love to know who's here and, and uh, if there's anything we can pray with you or pray for you about. Uh, we also have an audio-only version that's available on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is search Faith on Hill. Um, so uh, it is, uh, we're in week two of in-person, but somewhat maskless. If you have uh, verified your vaccination with Janelle Centers, um, then you can not wear a mask. And I'll tell you, it was weird. Um, it was just different. And, and that was something we all noticed. Um, and some people still chose to wear masks and some people didn't. And there was no judgment on either side. And, uh, you know, we're just, uh, the, the big thing that we had was let's just be consistent. So we chose to cons be consistent and the follow the, the current guidelines. And so that's what we're doing. Uh, also, uh, we still are taking food donations for Wichita Family Center, and even if you're not coming in person, uh, if you just say, hey, I've got a donation for, uh, for the food barrel, let me know, and we'll make sure that you can come by the church, and during the weekend, we'll, we'll get it over there. Um, finally, uh, our Wednesday night Zoom small group is taking a break for the summer. Uh, but we are planning on doing church in the field uh, starting in July, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to that and probably have some lunches afterwards together. So uh, we've got some fun things planned for the summer. Uh, after our Bible study, stick around. We have a time of response through prayer. And if you have a Bible, open it to the book of 1 John chapter 2. Hey, good morning. And if you have your Bibles open to the book of 1 John chapter 2, I want to read from the Word of God starting in verse 18. And John said, Dear children, this is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have come, this is how we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know the truth, and because you know it. And because no lie comes from the truth, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. I'm writing you these things because to you, I'm going to say that again, verse 26. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. You do not need anyone to teach you. 
but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. This is God's word. These are true things that the Apostle John has written to the church. And everything that we're talking about is really a response because we know the truth. So he starts out by saying, this is the last hour. And then he says, we know that the Antichrist is coming and that many Antichrists have come. Hmm. This is the last hour. Now, this word Antichrist has a lot of baggage with it, doesn't it? Maybe you think of some horror movie that you saw, uh, The Omen, you know, uh, was that the, the kid Damien, uh, you know, uh, maybe you think of a movie you saw, maybe you think of a book you've read. I know uh, when I was in high school, the Left Behind books came out and it felt like everybody had read them. Maybe you, you think of some teaching you've heard in the past, but that word comes loaded. The word antichrist is, is the Greek word antichristos. It literally just means opposed to Christ. And so he says the antichrist, the antichrist is coming. You might remember a while back, just a couple months ago, when we were going through the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, we talked about the Antichrist. In Daniel chapter 9, God gives Daniel this vision of the future, and he sees somebody coming who will set sort of a peace treaty in place, and then after about three and a half years, he will enter the temple in Jerusalem. Now, you might say, there's no temple in Jerusalem. I'm just going to say the Bible says there will be, and I'm going to leave it at that. And if you have more questions, adam at faithonhill.com. But the Bible says in Daniel chapter 9, God says that there's coming this leader who will make a peace treaty with God's people. And, and then about three and a half years in, he will go into the temple in Jerusalem and he will desecrate it. What he will do will be an abomination. And many people thought that Daniel's prophecy was about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and, and the Maccabean revolt a few hundred years before Jesus. And Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And so many thought, well, that was the fulfillment of it. And I believe it was a first or a partial fulfillment or it was a type of fulfillment. But Jesus said, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, future tense, just like the prophet Daniel spoke about. So Jesus said, it wasn't Antiochus Epiphanes. That was not the final prophecy of the, or the fulfillment of that prophecy. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the Bible speaks about a coming man of lawlessness who will be revealed, and then Jesus will return. So all throughout the scripture, and I've just given you two verses, Daniel chapter 9 and, and 2 Timothy 2, 
all throughout the scripture, there is this idea of a coming ruler or leader who will be opposed to God. And he is commonly referred to from this verse as the Antichrist. There are a lot of people who have wasted a lot of time trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. I have no interest in trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. I want to know Jesus Christ and him alone. That's my take on the matter. But then John throws a wrench into the whole thing and he says, many Antichrists have come. Now this is in direct alignment with what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 24. If you want some I don't know what to read in my Bible this week kind of homework, go and read Matthew chapter 24. It's one of Jesus's sort of iconic teachings in the gospel, and it is his primary teaching on the end times or Bible prophecy. And Jesus in Matthew 24 said that many will come and say, I am the Christ, or the Christ is over there in that hidden room or in that secret place. Uh, I don't think that they teach it anymore, but early Jehovah's Witness teaching actually said that Jesus had come back to earth and he was kind of in some secret place. I believe it was in New York City. Others have come and said, no, I'm, I'm the Christ. And so when we say antichrists have come, you say, well, wait, not the antichrist. No, but over the years, there have been many in history who have sort of fit the bill of what the scripture describes as the Antichrist. I believe that's for a couple of reasons. One is just that Jesus said many false Christs will come. Many will try to be a false Messiah, a false Savior, even a false Jesus. And so you look at human history and some said, you know, uh, Martin Luther if you've ever been to a Lutheran church, they get their name after Martin Luther and Martin Luther King named after Martin Luther. Martin Luther, who kind of was the figurehead of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, he was convinced that the Pope in his day was the Antichrist. And I've read about that Pope. Not a great guy. And maybe kind of fit the bill. Others at certain points in history thought maybe it's Napoleon. Or they thought uh, this Roman emperor or that Roman emperor, or they thought maybe it's Hitler. All of them, if you, I mean, if you want to call Hitler the Antichrist, I don't have, I don't think you'd get much argument, right? I believe that is because the devil, the enemy, is opposed to God. And he is trying to put forward his rule of this world. And so he is always trying to put forward his guy to be his false Christ. And, and every time someone comes forward who kind of fits the bill, whether it's a, a Roman emperor or a Pope or a Hitler or a Mussolini, somebody comes forward, a Napoleon who kind of fits the bill, they get so far. And then it's almost like God says, no farther. And things cool off. And then somebody else comes along and they heat up again. And God says, no farther. And I have no trouble believing that there will come another sort of figure who at some point people will say, is that the guy? Because he kind of fits. And one of these days, God's going to say, yeah, okay, I'm going to allow this. And that will be the Antichrist because God's saying it's time to end this madness. But it's not just big world leaders who have the spirit of Antichrist. I remember uh, as a child, 
the Branch Davidians, David Koresh, claimed to be Christ. He was an antichrist. Joseph Smith or Muhammad, who claimed to be prophets for God, but spoke against Jesus. What is it that, that John says um, here in uh, in verse 22, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. And there are people who say, well, Mormons, they're just a Christian denomination, right? I've had some wonderful experiences with friends and neighbors and coworkers who are part of the Latter-day Saint uh, group, church, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But it is not the true faith. It, do you believe that Jesus is God? No, we believe he is the Son of God. But you don't believe he is God, equally God with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. No. How is a person saved? Is it just by faith in Jesus alone and nothing else? All of those questions put forward, and you would say Joseph Smith is an antichrist. David Koresh was an antichrist. Anyone who comes, there's a church, a big church in South Korea, and they taught that the founding couple were the Christs for this generation. Antichrist, blasphemy. So there is the Antichrist coming, and there are many false Christs around. Some of them bigger, more well-known, some of them smaller, just you know, localized, uh, a small cult that kind of takes root in some community. But, but John says, hey, we know this is the last hour. There, the Antichrist is coming. This, the Antichrists are in this world already. But this is interesting. He says the reason we know it's the last hour is because those who have departed. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul talks about the, the last days. And in, and in verse 5, he talks about those who, who depart, those who go off after strange teachings, and apparently, from implication, what had happened to the Christians that John was writing to was there had been a sort of a departure. There's differing schools of thought as to when this letter was written, but I believe it was written in the late 80s, early 90s AD, right around the time of the first widespread persecution of the church. The church of Jesus had been persecuted locally. There was a persecution in Jerusalem. There was a persecution in Ephesus. There was a persecution in Rome under Nero. There, there were localized persecutions of Christians. But under an emperor named Diocletian, that was the first widespread persecution. And by inference, during that time, there were those who denied the faith and those who walked away. And John says, we know that it's the last days because they left. Uh, again, in, in another part of the Bible, you know, Paul says, the Spirit expressly says that in the last days, there will be those who are, who are there will be a great deception and a great apostasy. And again, I think that there have been times where there have been sort of great apostasies as things sort of heat up and then God says, not yet, and things sort of cool down. And then they heat up again and God says, not yet, and they sort of cool down. But he says, we know this is the last hour. And how do we know this? Because we know the truth. 
because we know the truth. If they had really been part of us, they would have remained. Does that mean that somebody who stops going to church is no longer a Christian? There are parts of the church that would teach that. And that's a scary thought, especially when you consider that statistically nationwide, since COVID started, 30% of people who were regularly part of a church family in 2019 have stopped going to church. No podcast, no online service, no online small group, nothing. A total disconnect from the church. And John says, if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. That's a scary thought. I would say this, and I've kind of said this during our study of 1 John, that there is a connection to the church that is probably something that is emphasized, that is something that we as American Western Protestant Christians are a little uncomfortable with. I don't believe that this is teaching that we are saved by belonging to a church. We're not saved through church membership. I'm not saved through church attendance. I'm only saved by the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And so are you. But there is an emphasis on the connection to the church of Jesus that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Even me, and I'm a pastor. But because we know the truth, we can recognize that we're in the last hour. And you might say, well, Adam, he wrote this 2,000 years ago. Yeah, so how much more is this the last hour? But he says this. The emphasis is not on Antichrist. The emphasis of this passage is not on the end times because we are marked by hope. He says, but you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. It's it's a uh, compare contrast. He says, okay, we know the Antichrist is coming and the The spirit of Antichrist is is here. There are Antichrists in this world already. But by comparison, you are marked. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know the truth. We're marked by hope. It's the last hour, but we're marked by hope. You are anointed by the Holy One, and you know the truth. So what does that show us? The Holy Spirit is at work in the church. When you and I placed our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came and baptized us into the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then I believe that there is a second work of God's grace where the Holy Spirit comes upon a person in power and empowers us to live like Jesus and empowers us to live in this world of darkness. And so that empowering looks different for different people. And some God empowers with great faith and others God empowers with uh, a kind of a gift towards uh, evangelism and others God empowers with a gift towards service and others God empowers with great faith and others God empowers with uh, supernatural giftings like praising God in other languages. That's commonly referred to as the gift of tongues or uh, having uh, words from the Lord, you know, uh, prophecy, which just means to speak the word of God. So that's contrasting with, yeah, there's the spirit of Antichrist that's spreading the false message of the enemy. But you have the anointing, the mark of hope, the Holy Spirit. People focus on the mark of the beast. I want to focus on the mark of hope in Jesus, that we're empowered to live in this world of darkness. And so we see the Holy Spirit 
anointing us. And then he says, you know the truth. Well, who's the truth? Jesus, the word of God. And where do we learn about Jesus? From the Bible, the word of God. And what does it do? It points us to the Father, the Trinity. And he says, if you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. That's the dividing line, by the way. If you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. The dividing line. Some people say, oh, we're all people of the book. We all worship the same God. Christians, Jews, Muslims, Mormons, we all worship the same God. It just looks a little different. No, we do not. I, I have lived in, in predominantly Muslim neighborhoods when I lived in the UK. And two of the greatest employees I ever had when I was in grocery store management were both Muslim men. And I, I have great respect for the neighbors and the friends and the coworkers I've, ever, I've had over the years who are part of the Islamic faith and tradition. I have had wonderful friends, neighbors, coworkers who are Jewish. Um, a neighbor I had in California, uh, he's a PhD and his whole thing is, is, uh, is about uh, European, uh, uh, the, the European Jewish community. He's got a book coming out. I'm very excited to read it. I have, again, like I said earlier, I have great friends, neighbors, interactions with people who are from the, the Mormon faith. All three of those faiths do not believe what we believe about Jesus. And that's the dividing line. That's the dividing line. How is it that, that I can go to a, a Catholic church, an Orthodox church, a Baptist church, a Pentecostal church, a non-denominational church, a very traditional church, a modern church, and I find unity it's because of Jesus. It's only because of Jesus. That's the dividing line. So if we proclaim Jesus, we proclaim hope. Jesus changes lives. Jesus restores the broken. Jesus sets the captive free. Jesus brings light into dark places. But if you deny Jesus, then you need hope. That, to me, is one of the reasons why we have to stand for certain issues in our day because it's a denial of the life change that God brings. We stand for sobriety not because we want to be religious about can a Christian have a drink or not. Well, of course, Jesus made wine, not only drank wine, he made wine. Can a Christian have a drink? I think some can. But should Christians be sober, yes, because we proclaim Jesus who sets us free from the bondage of substance abuse. Should Christians live uh, in moral purity? Yes. Why? Because we have Jesus who brings light into darkness, who brings light into our browser history, who brings light into what we watch on our television. I, there's certain things I, I really love, you know, for all the things people knock about technology, there's certain things I really love. Like if you watch something on Netflix, it immediately comes up as watch that again, right? I love that. I love that kind of accountability. If you proclaim Jesus, you proclaim hope. So we're not talking about moralism and keeping a bunch of rules. We're talking about proclaiming the, the God who sets us free from sin and the bondages of death. And anywhere we deny Jesus, it's because we're denying hope. We know the truth. So yes, this is the last hour. And I'm not surprised about the madness and the insanity all around us. 
but we're marked by hope. Now, somebody might say, Adam, uh, why, why is it that uh, it used to be that Christians talked a lot about the end times, and now it doesn't seem like anybody wants to talk about it? Well, you might remember, I think it was last week, I said that there are pastors in my generation who do not want to talk much about heaven. And the reason is, is that previous generations only talked about heaven and seemed to not care about the here and now. I think the same thing is true when it comes to the end times. There was a previous generation, the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, that they only wanted to talk about the end times. And they didn't care about the here and now. And so in the 2000s, the shift kind of happened, and there was a big focus on the here and now, being missional, missionaries into our community. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 was a big focus, seeking the peace of the city that God has put us into. And I believe in that. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about eternity. And if Jesus took the time to talk about prophecy in the end times, and if the scripture is full of discussions about these things, including the scripture we're studying this morning, then I want to be aware and I want to know. Now, I'm not interested in being on the planning committee for Jesus' second coming. I'm just fine being on the welcoming committee. I do think there's some, one other thing involved with why you don't hear churches talk about the end times anymore. There's one other thing. Who were the most popular Bible teachers of the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s? Jack Hayford, John MacArthur, Chuck Smith, Chuck Swindoll, later on Greg Laurie. All of them had a huge emphasis in their teaching, a huge emphasis on the end times. And then look at who the most popular, the most downloaded, when, when the shift went from radio to podcasts, from TV to YouTube, who are the most viewed, the most downloaded preachers and teachers from the 2000s on, the last 20 years. And they aren't people who had an emphasis. In fact, their theology or their, um, their tradition, their denominational theological tradition might have a, a non-prophecy focused view. Here's why I'm mentioning this because I think it matters. If we get what we understand about the Bible only from me or from popular teachers, and we don't do the work ourselves to dig in, to study God's word, then we're just going to parrot. We're just going to parrot whatever that popular teacher or whatever that pastor or preacher says. I was speaking with somebody who had grown up under some of the best Bible teaching that I know of. And they fully agree with everything I believe about Bible prophecy in the end times. But they couldn't tell you why. They couldn't really articulate any of it because they hadn't done the work themselves. They had just over years and years heard the same sermons taught. And so they had enough to repeat a few key phrases. The same is true, by the way, of people my age who grew up or who came up with, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Timothy Keller or John Piper, or, um, Matt Chandler or uh, Andy Stanley or whoever, Craig Rochelle. And they're, they're growing up listening to these guys. And, and then they say, oh, that stuff's just, you know, uh, stuff from fundamentalists from 20 years ago, but they can't tell you why either because they haven't done the work themselves to go in with the scripture and all they do is just parrot whatever they've heard. This is why I'm mentioning this. Whether you put an emphasis on 
the end times and Bible prophecy or not, that's not what I'm here to talk about. But we should put an emphasis, because what is it that he said? He says, the Spirit anoints you and you know the truth. Why do you know the truth? Because you've done the work. I believe that Christians can and should do the work. Does that mean that I need to be an expert on every point of theological discussion? No, not a chance. I would make a terrible theologian. I've realized this about myself, you know, partially because I just don't care. Let me explain what I mean by that. Theologians will sit around and they'll, there's some fine point of something or other, and they'll just debate, debate, debate. And I go, so, I, I, you know, the average person in my neighborhood could care less and it doesn't affect them. So does the Bible say this or does the Bible say that? I say, "Mm." but the big things about God, him changing lives, that the fact that this world will not just go on forever, that Jesus is returning to set things right. Those big ideas, I think we can and should know the truth about so that I don't worry every four years, you know, Half the country worries when one person wins and half the country worries four years later when the other person wins. And I don't worry about any of that because I know the true king is coming. I'm confident in Christ. And that's the last thing to focus on here. Verse 24, as for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the son and in the father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing you these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. It's interesting he says that, but then he's teaching them. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Because we know the truth, we know this is the last hour, but we are marked by hope and we are confident in Christ. John's calling to these believers who have seen many go astray. And let's be honest about this. It's not just COVID in 2020. How many people have you known in the last 10 years who were following Jesus who have gone astray? Who were following Jesus who now do not follow him? It's a number that is far too high. And let's be honest, it's growing. I remain confident in my hope, in in trusting Jesus for myself and trusting that Jesus is doing his work. I firmly believe that one of the callings Jesus is going to give our church and is giving our church is reclaiming the people who wandered away. And I I think that is an opening God is giving us. But he says in verse 26, there will be people that try to lead you astray. They'll try but we can be confident in Christ. God's mark, his spirit, his anointing of hope remains in us, verse 27. And then in verses 28 and 29, he says, continue so that when Jesus appears, and I believe that can be summed up by Colossians 1, verse 27, where where Paul says these words, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
And I believe that we know the truth. We can see that this is the last days. We can see the true believers who are marked by hope, anointed by the Spirit, full of the truth. And we can be confident in Christ. And that is the hope of glory. And since Jesus has saved a sinner like me, and he saved a sinner like you, then what's to say he can't save the person that we've been praying for, that we've been asking God to get a hold of, the person who has grieved us by walking away? I have great hope. I don't have any hope in me, but I have great hope in Jesus. And as we come, we find Jesus. I say this, I don't say this enough, and yet I say it all the time. If you come to church for any other reason, Other than Jesus, you will be disappointed. But if you come looking for Jesus, I believe that we find Jesus where his people are. We're confident in Christ. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world around us. It doesn't matter what others are doing. We know what Jesus is doing in our lives. And let's respond to what Jesus is doing. We respond through uh, worship. There's a lot of good songs on YouTube. We respond through prayer, and we're going to pray in a minute. We respond through giving, and, and I encourage everyone to be generous with what God has given them. And if Faith on Hills, your church family, we invite you to worship the Lord through giving and support the work God is doing here. But if you say, "Oh, I don't," you know, that's just what churches do. They try. We don't. We're not trying to get your money. Be generous with what God has given you, and the Lord will lead you. I trust God to lead you in the right way. Let's respond to Jesus together. Well, as we have heard God speak to us through his word, we want to respond right now through a time of prayer. If you would, we're going to take a moment and go through a a form of prayer that has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's called the the daily examine, and we do a, a sort of a weekly examine. So however a posture of prayer looks like for you, whether it's standing, sitting, eyes opened, eyes closed, hands raised, hands folded, whatever that is, I invite you to enter a posture of prayer. I also want to invite you to uh, pause, literally hit the pause button if you need to. If you need to stop and pray longer and linger, that's totally fine. So feel free to hit that pause button whenever you need to, and then just unpause it and come back with us. But let's enter prayer together. Father, we thank you that you always hear our prayers. Jesus, thank you that you have made a way between people and God. And Holy Spirit, we invite you into our lives and our hearts and in the room that we are in right now. Thank you that you have been speaking to us. Help us and guide us towards Jesus, our Savior, as he brings us to God the Father. And as we are here and paused, I invite you to consider your emotions. Take stock. How are you feeling about this week, about what we have just studied in God's word, Let's be aware of ourselves and our emotions and our feelings. And let's also examine and take stock of the week behind us. 
How did our jobs go, our interacting with people, our, uh, our response to the world around us? Lord, we take the things that were good and we rejoice in all of the good that you have done in our world this last week. We take the things that were difficult and we surrender them to you. We know that you were walking with us through those things and the things that we don't understand, we surrender to you and say, we don't understand them, but we know that you are good. Invite you to take stock of the week ahead, our work, our responsibilities, our plans, our, uh, our hopes, and our concerns. And Lord, again, we rejoice in the hopeful things coming up, and we surrender our next week to you, our work to you, our play to you, our lives to you. Jesus, you gave everything for us. Help us to lay our lives down to you and surrender to you. And as we've examined our, our thoughts and our feelings and our plans, whatever is weighing on you, at this moment I invite where you're at, whether out loud or in your heart, to name it, to say it before God. This is the thing that weighs me down. This is the thing that concerns me. This is the thing that is, is weighing heavy. And Lord, I surrender it to you. I ask that you would do your work. I ask that you would give me wisdom, understanding, faith, boldness, peace. We also think about the people in our lives who we have great concern for. Unsaved family members, friends, people with real concerns. Maybe they're, they're saved, but they're, they're going through trial and struggle. And at this moment, I ask you and invite you to name them where you're at, out loud or in your heart, before God. Lord, those that we know are going through struggle, we give to you. We trust them to you. Those that we care about deeply, who do not know you, who have not surrendered themselves to you, we pray, Lord, that you would speak again to them. We name them. You know them. We ask for them. And we trust you, Jesus, to do all that you can do for them. We ask for them, for these concerns, for the past week, for the future week. We pray in the name of Jesus over these things. Amen. God bless you. If you need more prayer, if there's something you want added to the church's prayer list, you can email adam at faithonhill.com. We want you to know that God is with you and that God is for you and that God loves you. We'll see you next week.